You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. But the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Amen. Well, good morning. That's a great morning. Good morning. There it is. <laughs> See, everybody's awake. Um, thankful for these guys leading us in worship. Everybody give them a hand. It's an awesome morning this morning. Inspiring. If I haven't met you before, my name is Chad Wiles. I'm one of the lead pastors here. Um, and I am uh, our biblical counselor as well. And so uh, every six to eight weeks, I come up here and, and we do a subject that is in the realm of counseling, taking a break from our normal sermon series that Pastor Sam does for us, doing an excellent job walking us through Scripture, helping us see and know God, see Him fully, and understand Him biblically, and we call that biblical theology. Pastor Sam does such a great job of helping us see that and know that. And so as I address issues of counseling, I'm addressing it and approaching it in a systematic way um, that is built upon that. And so I am excited to be here, excited to do this with us, and we're starting a new series um, today in the counseling over the next year or so. We're going to address topics that seem to live outside of the realm of the Bible's authority, or at least commonly thought to live outside of the realm of the Bible's authority. And so we're going to be addressing the topic of addiction today. It's timely, right, is our announcement with Nehemiah Project. And so I want to address that, get into that, because as Mike showed, as he asked everyone to raise their hands to see if you've been impacted by addiction, we saw that everyone's hands essentially were raised. And so we know that this issue is, is important, this issue uh, impacts all of us, and that we need to understand how we should approach the issue of addiction, because it is a seemingly hopeless situation and circumstance for most of us, and I want us to see that the Bible actually offers us a lot of hope in this regard. And so before we can address the authority of addiction, or, or sorry, addiction, we need to address the authority of, of Scripture, or what authority should we go to in order to see how we find the hope in something like addiction? Where do we turn to to find the answers and the hope that we so desperately need and seek? Uh, do we go to the, psych, the psychologist, the professional in this realm that we would see in the, the world would say is, is the expert in this in this regard, or do we turn to the Word of God or turn to God's authority? And we have to answer that question because too often many of us look at our Scripture, look at, look at the Bible as a, an authority over a small portion of our life, reduced down to um, our spiritual needs or in the way we've defined our spiritual needs, but when areas like this, it, it doesn't have anything to say or we commonly don't look at it as the authority over areas like this, Right? And so how do we begin to understand this? We have to address this in order to know how to approach addiction. So just so we can get on the same page, psychology defined is just the study of mind and behavior. The study of mind and behavior. In other words, it's issues of the heart, as you've heard us define here before um, in previous counseling sermons, issues of the heart. I want to take just a few moments to recap what the issues of the heart are, how should we understand the heart biblically. And I think you'll see that it, it tends to, to line up with what would 
the world would even, would even say is the approach to the mind and the body. And so we see uh, mind and behavior. The heart is the real you. We know we've talked about that. The heart is the real us. It's our, it's our cognition, it's our affections, and it's our desires. We see that God looks into the heart. First Samuel 16, 7, God says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Right? And so the Lord looks to the heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. And so when the Bible speaks to the heart, it's speaking about those three categories of our cognition, our thoughts, our beliefs. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and perfect. The Bible also speaks to our affections, our desires, um, our emotions, and our motives, right? James 4, 1 through 2 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So we see our affections. The, the Word of God speaks to our affections, and also... When it speaks about the heart, it speaks of our volition, our will, our choices that lead into action. Luke 6, 45 says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So, on the categories of the heart or of psychology, Scripture in the realm of professional psychologists actually largely agree on what we're speaking about. So we can land the plane there and say, okay, on that realm... We're speaking on the same issues. There's not two different issues going on. There's the same issue. So, and one, one thing that I want to address with that too is I believe that psychology is super helpful in a lot of ways. I have a bachelor's degree in psychology, a master's in biblical counseling. I've spent a lot of time in both realms and worlds, and I still read a lot of articles when it comes to issues of the heart of the mind that is put out by the Association of of a, physio a Physiological Association of Psychology, and they're, they're very good, they're very helpful in ways of observation. Psychology, by nature, is an observational science, right? Observing, understanding behavior patterns, um, doing a lot of studies, helping us understand how things function, how they work, and it's very helpful. Also, when I'm speaking upon this, I want to be very clear that what I'm not saying is that we would um, ign ignore true and proven medical issues. So I'm not advocating for us to just ignore those things or to go super fundamental and we only just read our Bible, pray, and hope that it works out. If you get like an ear infection, I would encourage you to go to the doctor and get antibiotics. Don't just read your word and pray. Continue to read your word and pray and get antibiotics, right? If you get a heartburn, drink Pepto-Bismol, or as my kids call it, daddy's medicine. <laughs> 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 Marie bought me some Pepto one day because I kept having heartburn. I like spicy food. I have grown to understand it has no longer enjoyed me any longer. And so she got me some, and Juliana's, what, what's that? That's what daddy drinks all the time. Is that daddy's medicine? Yeah, that's daddy's medicine. So do that. We're not saying don't consider or don't go to the things that are medically proven because that would also be unbiblical. Because the Bible talks about a general grace where God 
has even through man who maybe not doesn't acknowledge him still has discovered things that he created and that are helpful and good for us that we consider those things and we utilize those things and so we're not saying don't worry about what the world has to say what we are saying is how do we understand it how do we put it in the right context right because there is an issue when it comes to the prescription of psychology what do i mean by that the prescribed solution the reason why there's an issue is because psychology is born out of Darwin's evolutionary theory. There's one major issue with Darwin's evolutionary theory. Does anybody know what that is? There's no God. That's a pretty big deal for Christians who believe in a one true God, right? Pretty big deal. Um, one of the uh, articles that I read recently, it's from uh, the American Psychological Association. It's, uh, it's entitled Darwin's Influence on Modern uh, phys- uh, psychology, uh, physiological psychology science from David Buss, professor of psychology at the University of Texas in Austin. Here's what he says, and this will help us understand what we're dealing with, right? He says, at the end of his classic treaty in 1859, on the origin of species, Darwin envisioned that in the distant future, the field of psychology would be based on a new foundation, that of evolutionary theory. A century and a half later, it's clear that his vision proved uh, prescient, which means prophetic or predictive. That's one of those high dollar words, right? Had to look it up. Um, evolutionary psychology, just kidding. Evolutionary psychology is not a, dis, a distinct branch of psychology, but rather a theoretical lens that is currently informing all branches of psychology. Here's what that means, just to help us understand, okay? In other words, man, who's limited in knowledge, fallible, sinful in nature as we understand man, is coming up with theories about the mind and behavior based upon observation of sinful man. So man observing man, trying to help understand how do we approach, deal with issues of the mind and the heart that we don't fully understand and we don't see it rightly. There's an issue there and it's also against God's word when it comes to not recognizing God as the authority. That's an issue for us. And so we gotta be really careful. So let's look at what does God's word say because Partly the reason why we do that sometimes is just out of the misunderstanding or not understanding what does God's word actually say about these things. Some of us are just ignorant in the sense of not understanding or knowing. And so let's look at what God's word does say on some of these issues. So what does God's word claim about issues of the heart? Okay, first, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, okay? That tells us a few things. One claim there is it speaks about the inerrancy of Scripture. So one claim that we have to wrestle with and understand is that the Bible says that the Word of God is God-breathed and the authority is given by God and this is, is inerrant, meaning no error. God spoke through man through to give us the Word of God. The Holy Spirit, God wrote this Word. We have to see it as inerrant. And if you're like, I don't believe that, we'll get to there in a second, it's okay. But we just need to understand what we are claiming or what the Bible claims. Next, we see that it claims to be sufficient, the sufficiency of Scripture. It's sufficient for areas of psychology or areas of the mind and of behavior, right? We see there that it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, right thinking, right living, as according to, the God, to God's Word. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped thoroughly 
Circle that word. Thoroughly. For every good work. It's not leaving anything out. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then we may ask the question, okay, are there limitations in Scripture's knowledge and understanding of matters of the heart? So is, has it left things out that it just doesn't speak about and doesn't show us, right? Well, let's go to Scripture and ask. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13, uh, the first part of 13 says, So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common for mankind. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 1, verses 9 through 10, says, What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, Look, there's something new. It was already long ago, and it was here before our time. There's nothing new. Nothing new under the sun. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, those three main categories that we see where issues come from, right? Comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. In other words, issues may take different forms and shapes, but the heart is the same. Issues of lust... It was all the way back in the Old Testament, and it looked like uh, prostitutes on the street corner or whatever. Now, your phone, you can look at pornography at any time you want. It's the same issue. It's just taking a different shape and form, right? There's nothing new, nothing new when it comes to the heart. So then that brings us to the last question we have to answer, and then we'll move actually into addiction. You're like, geez. All right, we'll get there. Is the gospel limited in power to deal with the issue of the heart? Is the gospel limited in power to deal with the issue of the heart? The gospel being the good news of Jesus Christ, that God would send his only son to live a perfect, sinless life, to be fully God, fully man, take full wrath and punishment on the cross for, uh, on our behalf, and defeat sin and death and be raised again so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That gospel, is that limited in its power? Well, Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew and then the Gentile. So Paul would say it's not limited in, in the power of salvation. If you've been here over the past couple weeks, Pastor Sam has been taking us through Luke 8, and we've seen a theme that we've been walking through, and I encourage you, if you haven't listened to the past two sermons, go to our podcast, go listen to those. Super powerful, but... We're talking about the power of Jesus Christ, and we're seeing four major areas where, where um, the Word has shown us Christ's power displayed, the power over nature. He's calming the storm. The power over demons and the demon-possessed man we just learned about last week. Power over disease that we'll hear about next week, and power over death. I don't think anything's left out there. Power over nature, power over demons, disease, and death. So what we can conclude then with all these things, God's word is sufficient in authority. It's without limitation of knowledge and the gospel is all powerful over all things. So here's what we cannot proclaim if we proclaim Jesus to be our Lord and Savior is that his word is limited in authority, he's limited in knowledge, and he's limited in power over all areas of life, especially matters of the heart. 
We cannot claim those two things. You cannot claim to be a believer in Jesus and claim that he's limited. Here's what you can claim. You can claim that you don't believe Jesus is Lord or God's word to be inerrant. You can claim that. And my goal here in doing this is not to shame you or, or anything like that, but it's to say, let's be honest. What do you actually believe as you're thinking through this? Because you can't, you can't have both. You've got to decide. You cannot claim both to be true. You can claim that you believe God is limited, his word is limited, or that you don't believe he exists at all. You can claim those things. Because when you look outside of Scripture for authority of matters of the heart, that is essentially what you're doing, whether you know it or not. We know that what you believe is what you do, so if that is what you're doing, just know that that is what essentially you are believing. And we have to understand that. Because as believers in Christ, if that is what you believe to be true, then we must look through the lens of Scripture and the frameworks that God has given us and has set up for us and the theological frameworks to understand the issues of the heart. So as we approach addiction, we have to approach it through Scripture, not outside of Scripture. And that's what we're going to do today, okay? So after that introduction, we're going to pray and we're going to dig into our subject of addiction. I promise we will get out of here in time for lunch, maybe. We'll see. All right, let's pray before we dig in. Father God, I pray that you would be near in this place. Help us to see rightly what your word says. God, give me wisdom as I speak that I would not speak from my own wisdom or earthly wisdom, but I would speak uh, through your word and that you would give us wisdom through your, your word and your word alone. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have to deal with addiction. What do we have to ask first? Well, first we have to ask, is addiction a sin or is it sickness? Is it sin or sickness? We have to establish that because modern psychology would call it a disease. Modern psychology would call it a disease and we have to understand that I, I can understand why that happened because over time, uh, addiction was often said it's like a disease, meaning it looks like a disease. And over time, it has progressed into it is a disease, right? And the reason for that is the experience of addiction looks a lot like disease. For anybody who's struggled with addiction before, there's a lot of similar patterns there. The experience of an addict is feeling out of control, feeling trapped, feeling helpless, feeling like the controlling object or the substance tells them how to think, feel, act. They feel like they're a victim to it. If you've had a disease before or a virus or anything like that, it comes on without you asking for it. And you're subject to it. If you've got 102 fever, there's not much you can do about that. If it's a virus, you ride it out and try to keep the fever down. Or if it's a different type of disease that we found a cure for, the medication, but you're, you're subject to that. And so for the person who struggled with addiction, it feels a lot like that. And that's the experience of it. So as we're observing it experientially, remember how we would do that, we could see how we would make that claim that it would be a disease, right? But the sickness theory does not quite hold up. So as we look at it in that way, where does it break down? Well, first of all, when it comes to matters of addiction, there's a desire and there's a reward attached to it that one is looking for. That's not true about a disease. No one says, Man, I can't wait to get a fever. I just love how that feels. I just want to lay and be in misery all day. No one says that. If you do, please come see me. You need help. 
<laughs> and I don't know if I can help you on that one, right? But there's a desire. We often say that addiction is not the issue. It becomes the issue, but what drove someone to addiction came from a different place. It was a heart issue. There was a desired outcome that one is looking for, right? Like you want to forget, maybe. Or you want to punish yourself. Or you want to cure self-consciousness and timidity. Or you want to avoid pain. Many people who get addicted to opioids start with a surgery. And it's, the pain is excruciating. And you start to take those medications and they feel really good. And it starts a pattern. Maybe you want to fill holes in one's self-image. Right? Maybe you want to manage emotions. Or maybe you just want to fit in with other people. And it starts there. Or maybe you want to prove to yourself and to others that you can do what you want, when you want. Or maybe you want to keep loneliness at bay. There's a, a ton of reasons that might drive someone to seek a substance for help. But that's not the same as a disease, right? Because there's some desire inside of the addict that drives them there. And so that would kind of break down the disease theory a little bit. And you might say, well, what about... Uh, being physiologically predispositioned, meaning genetically predispositioned to it. If your mother or father was an addict, you're more likely to be an addict. Well, that's definitely um, has been shown to be a real possibility, and we would say that the Bible wouldn't disagree with that. Ed Welch, in his book, Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave, I, I encourage you to check out that book if you're interested in this. But he says this, he says, <clears throat> most researchers are quick to point out that the biologically oriented studies suggest that genetics can influence people. And with this, scripture has no dispute. People can be physiologically predisposed to enjoying a particular drug, food, activity, or physical experience, but there is a categorical difference between being influenced by genetics and being determined by it. There's a difference between influence and determination. Right? We won't argue that you could be influenced. The Bible would agree with that. In a lot of ways, we see scriptures talking about sin being carried out generation after generation. There's a category in scripture that we would say we could agree with that. But it does not mean that self-control is impossible, and it doesn't mean that personal responsibility is abdicated. Right? Just because it's influenced doesn't mean it determines you. It's helpful in understanding that you could be um, influenced more so that you could say, hey, if my dad was an alcoholic, I probably should abstain from going down that road because I have a possibility of, of going down that road as well. But the responsibility is still on us, right? And there's still freedom and hope in that. So that would not say that it's definitely a disease, right? Well, what about cravings? Many would point to cravings as, well, what about when I'm, not, I'm no longer taking the drug or I'm no longer drinking alcohol, but I just crave it all the time. Doesn't that show that it's something inside of me? Well, that theory is also flawed because that would sh it really points to that the substance seems to be the culprit for the craving, not the other way around. Meaning, if someone is dealing with addiction or alcoholism, and then they're sober for a few years, but they're like, I still crave it from time to time. That's better explained in uh, Pavlov's classical conditioning theory. Right? Let's say we can look to psychology and learn a lot. Right? Many of you know classical conditioning. It's a pretty common theory that's out there. Ivan Pavlov, Pavlov's dog. <clears throat> Essentially, he feeds the dog 
rings a bell. Feeds the dog, rings a bell. Feeds the dog, rings a bell. Eventually, he rings a bell, no food, dog salivating. He responds wanting the food even though it's not there, right? The cravings that come from being in, when you're sober, come from still desiring the substance because there's that classical conditioning put there. I, I can speak to my own. I um, used smokeless tobacco for, for about 10 years from age 12 to 22. Many also know that as dip or snuff. I grew up on a tobacco farm in Kentucky. It was going to happen, all right? <clears throat> I was genetically predisposed. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so I used it every day for 10 years. I would, I would put a dip in after eating. I would be on the farm. I would be dipping. I'd be playing baseball. Yes, public school baseball. East Kentucky, coaches, dip. Nobody said anything. Yes, we did that. Did that all the time. And so for me, it was just a part of my life. And then I got saved at 22 and started to feel convicted about it. And started to feel like I needed to stop using this substance because it wasn't honoring to God. It wasn't good for my body. And so I started to abstain from it. But every time I would go to the farm, I wanted it. Every time I'd go hunting, I wanted it. Every time I ate a meal, I wanted it. Every, like, name it, I wanted it. It was there. The craving was there. But that was because it was something I had become reliant upon that was removed that I still had that desire for. It doesn't mean that, that it's something inside of me that couldn't be reversed. It just means that it took an impact on my body physiologically, and it's going to take a long time for those cravings to go away. They eventually did, but even to this day, there's still moments and times when it might pop in my head and say, man, I really want that, but that still isn't an excuse for me to use it. Just because it's there is not an excuse to do it, and that takes away some of that idea of disease. There's also cravings that happen when using, right? After you use, this, use it once or in addiction. And God has given us these neurotransmitters. Many of you have heard of these things, right? And things like serotonin and dopamine and endorphins, just to name a couple. There's a lot more. And they impact mood, sexual desire, sleep, learning, memory, cognitive, cognitive behavior, uh, cognitive functioning, heart rate, memory, anxiety levels, pain effects, um, central nervous system functions. They pretty much control our entire body, and when we take substances and chemicals, it starts to mess with the whole framework of us internally. Things that God has put a lot of natural things like food and exercise and things that are supposed to regulate those in a natural, healthy way, we've taken and entered a substance that has messed that up. And so, of course, we have cravings, but that still isn't proof that it's a disease, right? It just helps us understand how it functions. So with that being said, let's turn it then to, okay, what does the Bible say about addiction? All right, if we're going to look through the lens of Scripture, then what should we think about addiction as it comes to God's Word? Well, in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies and, th and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 5, 10-11 says, Not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since you would need to go out of, this, out of the world, 
But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And so when we look at these categories as the, the Bible lays them out, the Bible always calls it sin. The Bible always calls it sin. But here's what I'll say to help us understand. Sin sometimes feels like a sickness because it's part of the human condition. Sin sometimes feels like sickness because it's natural to all of us. The craving, the desire, the temptation to want to look at something outside of God is natural. It's what we do. And so it feels like sickness. Temptation feels like sickness. It feels like it comes on out of nowhere. But we have to understand it as sin. Isaiah 1, 5 through 6 even calls it sickness. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Right? The experience of it, it even feels like, sounds like sickness. It's like sickness, not it is. Right? There's a difference. It is sin. So we have to understand all categories of sin real quick because you might be thinking, well, what about the person who was sexually abused as a child and then can't really deal with the pain of that and they turn to substances for the relief of that? Are we saying that we need to condemn them or look at them in condemnation? No, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is sin still covers all gamuts of life. We just have to understand it, that there's the sin that you choose the sin of commission and omission, meaning you're supposed to do something and you choose not to do it, that God tells you, and that's omission, omitting it, or committing, commission, of God tells you to do something and we don't do it. And that's, we're responsible for those things. There's also the sin of suffering, meaning being sinned against at the hands of another. And there's a way to have to deal with that. And there's a way to deal with that gently, and there's a way to deal with that in grace, but it's still under the umbrella of sin. Right? And I'm thankful for Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. <clears throat> That's not on your screen. <clears throat> so it's okay, Michelle. Um, it says in Hebrews 4, it says, since, there, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, <clears throat> but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need, understanding that no one suffered more than our Savior Jesus at the hands of others. He understands, and we approach it with grace, so not with condemnation, with grace, but it's still in the category of sin. We have to understand it that way. So now let's redefine addiction biblically. I'm thankful for guys like Ed Welch. He helps us with this, and I really agree with his quote from his book. He says, Addiction is bondage to the rule of a substance, activity, or state of mind, which then becomes the center of life, defending itself from the truth so that even bad consequences don't bring repentance and leading to future estrangement from God. That is the right way for us to understand addiction, right? It's the bondage, the rule of a substance. 
that becomes a center of life even to the point of even bad consequences wouldn't cause us to repent. And we know the wake of destruction that comes with addiction, right? And so the best place for us to understand, it, <clears throat> understand addiction is in the category of slavery and idolatry. That's where addiction lives. That's the best place for us to help understand it. Real quick, I'll remind us of our definition of idolatry, biblical definition, which is idols are the object of our worship, right? Worship defined as anything that we seek, serve, sacrifice for, spend our time, money on, speak about most, trust in, basically anything that's put in the place where God is supposed to be, right? And idols are designed to serve us, but they inevitably enslave us. When we make, when we make idols, they're there to serve us as God. And we always think they're going to give us what we want. Remember we say this a lot, idols promise everything and they take away everything. They, they eventually enslave us. Look what Psalm 115, 1 through 8 says. It says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Right? Our idols are objects, things of this world, things that are not God and have no life, but we become like them. We become enslaved to them. So as we've understand the issue and the problem of addiction, let's end with the hope. Right? We didn't travel down this road not to turn it around and say, okay, what do we do with all this? Well, number one, hope begins with the understanding that sin is common to man. Hope begins with the understanding that sin is common to man. As we talked about earlier, all of us are sinful. So it helps us understand, okay, we can understand how addiction would live and where it would come from because it's true for all of us. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, dead in our trespasses. All of us, right? Romans 3, 10 through 12. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And that's true for me as well. Romans three twenty three. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Remember, when we define sin, it's God's holiness and perfection that we have to be at the standard of. And anything that's less than that standard is sin. So maybe you're not an addict, but you're no different in, the, in that area of sin, right? All of us have this nature inside of us. All of us have sin which is common to us. But, number two, God frees us from the slavery of sin through the gospel, that's why it was so important for us to define, does God have the power over everything? Is the gospel powerful enough, right? And we know that it is. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Look at that. Wages of sin is death. And for those who are struggling in addiction, feel like death. For those impacted by family members who are struggling in addiction and how it impacts their life, feels like death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Made us alive together with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. That in Jesus, he renews you completely. A rebirth, a new life, a new heart. Right? And my favorite verse, and Nehemiah Project's kind of built off this one. Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For freedom, the gospel gives you freedom. Remember, addiction lives in idolatry and slavery, and the gospel gives you freedom and hope. But there's an imperative. We have to do something with that, to stand firm, because and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery tells us that even in Christ, if we are not diligent, we could also still fall into slavery again. Right? We have to stand firm. Which leads us to our last point, and we'll be done. Standing firm is the long-term hope. Standing firm is the long-term hope. And we've got to stand firm in three ways. First, we have to stand firm in truth. We have to stand firm in truth. Colossians 2, 6-8. Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Stand firm on the gospel. Stand firm on the truth of who Christ is. Stand firm on who God is. Stand firm on his word. Don't let yourself be pulled away and tempted. Don't fall into temptation. Stand firm in truth. Number two, stand firm in action. So as we stand firm on belief, we stand firm in our obedience of that belief, in action. John 14, 15 through 17 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Right? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. For those who are in Christ, you have the God himself living inside of you, the Holy Spirit, to help you understand and agree with his word and walk in it. You are not left to walk in it on your own in your own power. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control, Galatians 5, right? But we are to stand firm in action. And then last but not least, we need to stand firm in community. We need to stand firm in community. God has provided the church, the body, to be a community for one another, to help one another stand firm. Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron. And one man sharpens another, right? As we speak truth, as we help people be accountable, as we come alongside and bear their burdens, Galatians 6, 1 through 2 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him 
in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We have a responsibility. Mike spoke about it earlier. The issues that we see around us, we have a responsibility to be ambassadors of Christ. And for those who are struggling in any sort of sin, but particularly in addiction today, we have the responsibility to take the gospel into that place, to be the ones who help and to be the ones who bear the burden with them. It is our job. It is our goal. And we want to do that as a church. And that's what we're trying to do even through the vehicle of a Nehemiah project. That is just a vehicle and a place for us to be the church in a place that needs the gospel desperately. So I really pray, first and foremost, in your own heart, where is this with you? Maybe addiction is not your issue. Or maybe there's a different addiction that maybe the world wouldn't see as such. But maybe there's a struggle. Maybe there's, for you, maybe making the decision on who Christ is, you haven't done that yet. Wherever you're at, I just encourage you to pray and seek the Lord this morning. And if there's any way for us to be a part of taking the gospel to someone else, I encourage you to do so. Be bold. Just like Paul says, the gospel is the power for salvation. We're not ashamed of it. Let's pray. Father God, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see your word rightly. That if nothing else this morning, that we would just see that you are our God who knows us, helps us, and is all-powerful in all realms of life. And that the gospel brings about freedom, no matter what we're struggling with. God, I pray if there's anything that was of my own accord, that it would be easily forgotten. But anything that is true and that is right and that is of you, I pray, um, would sink deep into our hearts and that it would produce the fruit of the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.